Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Everyone and welcome to Future Tech Podcast. I'm your host Juliette Lamar, and joining us today is George Howard. He's the founder of GHS, and he's got a lot of other companies we're going to talk about. Welcome to the program, George. Well, thank you very much. It's really nice to be talking to you. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to to join us and uh, and really enlighten our listeners. So let's kick it off with talking about GHS. Uh, okay. Give our listeners a little bit of an overview about your company. Yeah, sure. So it's a strategic strategic company. Um, we do some do some branding, but it, it's really it's really strategy, and it evolved out of um, me being an entrepreneur since a million years ago, um, and and dominantly in the music business. Um, and I, I always just sort of, as a, even as a young kid, had a bent towards sort of technological innovation. So I was coding away on a Commodore sixty four when I was when I was little, um, and but but also. Um, you know, kind of being an artist, so creating music, et cetera. And, and so it was a very natural sort of progression to get into music and technology uh, early on and ended up running uh, the first CD-only label, the first label that had a website, um, and, and didn't really think much of it while I was doing it. Just, it just felt very natural. Um, around 2004 or five or so, the sort of nascent social media was emerging, and I saw that as a um, as another way to help artists um, and, and as I say you know my, my drive has always been to use technology or whatever to help artists and I saw social media as kind of a tool to do that and I was given a talk up at, um, at Brown University and about social media and how it could apply to the arts and um, in the audience were some people from CVS Pharmacy, um, which is based in outside of Providence. And they came up uh, to me afterwards and said, well, this sounds really interesting. Do you think it would work for, you know, non-music stuff? And I said, well, of course. And, and they said, well, we've been thinking about, um, you know, building out um, a social platform for ourselves. Could you help us? And as I say, up to that point, I just, I'd, I'd been a, I'd been a uh, entrepreneur. I'd never really thought of advising other companies. Um, as, but as sort of in a weird position, I had just, uh, started a company called TuneCore, which again used technology to help artists get their music up on the iTunes without a label. But I had, I had a little moment, a window of time where I, I said yes. Um, and it, it gave me this insight that the music industry, working with CVS gave me this insight that the music industry is sort of a canary in a coal mine insofar as a lot of things that happen to the broader culture or broader technology begin first in the music space. And, um, and so I was, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was uh, you know, deeply interested in this observation about how, um, how I could use uh, music as sort of this leading edge tool to figure out how to help artists, uh, help other companies use some of these insights that the music industry had had to, had to uh, had to deal with, um, and so it started with CVS, and then I've ended up working with lots of non-music companies. But the through line of it all is that the technology um, is uh, is a tool, and and the, the, with CHS, what we do is we we, we try to keep purpose um, in the in the lead instead of product. We have this sort of deep abiding philosophy that once products or company once companies sort of come to productize and they lose track of their purpose, they come commoditized, um, they fall prey to 
you know, uh, race to the bottom pricing. And again, I saw that in the music industry. So really our, our thread, our theme and, and my company is to help companies sort of unearth or polish up their, their purpose and then use technology to sort of scale that and spread that out um, in the most efficient way possible. You know, you said something very interesting that when you were saying how music is kind of the canary in the coal mine, it's like a leading edge tool. You know, why do you think that is very specific to the music industry? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, my thesis is is that that um, if you look at if you look at music industry as it relates to you know the newer technology, it, it you, you can kind of look at Napster, and Napster was was arguably the first social network. And why why did it happen with Napster, you know, a music based platform rather than others? Um, a couple of reasons. One, music is a really really durable and and um, emotion driving medium. Um, people care passionately about it. People want to share it passionately, um, more so maybe than other mediums. And that, that's a through line with music audience exchange too, which we can talk about. But also, if you think about it, the context of 1999, um, the only people that had access to high-speed internet uh, at that time were really, you know, college kids or people in corporations. Um, college kids also had more time than they had money, so they were willing to do something like hack together. Um, uh, you know, a, a protocol program for sharing, and they wanted to share this music. It was very natural for them, and and they also had much less to lose. So, um, because of music's sort of unique position in people's lives, there's something called the, the reminiscence bump, which talks about you know kind of the things that happen to you between the ages of 18 and 25 being significant for the rest of your life. And music's always the threat. And and so um, if you think about innovation generally, it, it typically occurs, um, disruptive innovation occurs um, in groups of people with, with little to lose, right? I mean, it's a classic sort of innovator's dilemma. So you've got young people passionate about a medium, access to technology. They try things. They're not afraid to try things that, you know, uh, the bigger companies would. Um, so uh, and additionally, and this is less relevant now, but at the beginning, at least, of the, of the Internet era, um, music files were just smaller. Um, once MP3 compression came in, um, it's far easier to, to transfer uh, music files than it was other forms in you know, video, et cetera. Um, but if you look at the way streaming, um, you know, started with music, it's just over and over and over again. You see these things, and unfortunately, you also see the bad as well. I mean, the music industry was, was really, really built on sort of uh, a firmament of, of racism and, and misogyny. Um, you know, arguably so is our country, but um, but it, it it's mm-hmm. reaping the, the sort of um, you know, problems of that. And if you look at a lot of other institutions that, that, you know, have been equally sort of cavalier with regards to their ethics. Um, you can see, you can see how music really, uh, unfortunately, showed the way with that too. Um, so again, it's my lens, and it's also it's also the industry that I know very well. So you know, maybe maybe if I had been a plumbing entrepreneur, I think the world all sort of adhered to you know plumbing first. But um, music <laughs> is, is instructive. Yeah, plumbing, plumbing, and music—things that affect everyone. <laughs> well, that's true. So you might be right if you if you had that plumber analogy. Um, yeah. So you also have a couple other companies that you've been involved yeah. in and that you've started. Um, tell us a little bit about Max. Max is is, is a platform and it's, it's so exciting. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, no, Max is Max is amazing, and I can say that because um, uh, you know without ego, because I, I give all of the credit really to my my co-founder Nathan Hanks um, and, and the amazing team that he's assembled. Um, Nathan is a serial entrepreneur. 
he um, he took a he, you know a ran and took a company called Reach Local um, Public and and just as one of the more brilliant people I've ever known in my life. And he just also happens to be deeply passionate about music. And he and I share the belief that that there's a lot of a lot of sort of unnecessary intermediaries between artists and, and consumers, artists and brands. Mm-hmm. There's deep sort of asymmetry between how brands use music and how artists are sort of treated by it, uh, the impact. And and so when Nathan cooked up the idea, um, he and I he and I started talking about, you know, how to how to kind of triangulate helping to helping to get artists really onto radio without payola. Uh, both Nathan and I believe strongly that with payola is um just an unnecessary sort of tax. And and so, um, you know, we wanted to bypass it. And Nathan's original idea was one where artists would be able to sort of um, buy remnant ad space, et cetera. And, and I, I challenged him on that. And we talked it through and realized that, you know, most artists don't don't have the funds to do that. Um, we realized that, that a, a better approach would be working with brands. And it, it, it really harkened back to, um, I, I ran a record company called Ryko Disc um, a million years ago. That was the first CD only label I mentioned. And um, we did an ad campaign with an artist named Nick Drake um, and Volkswagen. And it was one of these perfect sort of confluences where a relatively unknown artist at the time um, uh, was, was put into an ad campaign that was just beautifully done. And the net result was, you know, lots more people became aware of Nick Drake's music. Volkswagen was deeply happy with the outcome, won lots of awards, and, and there was no dissonance between the, the customer, the Nick Drake fans, and, and the use of his music in an ad campaign. And this was, this was going back to you know, maybe the early 2000s at a time before it became sort of de rigueur for all artists to put their music into ads. And, and that stuck with me, and I always wanted to try to, I always wanted to try to articulate that again, particularly as other streams of revenue for artists completely collapsed. The sale of recorded music, you know, revenue from that is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. So, um, so we, we sort of triangulated around that and, um, and then Nathan has, has put together an amazing team, including uh, the, the, uh, the CTO um, who has built, you know, technology that, that really allows us to scale and, and find that sweet spot where there's real, real emotional resonance between the brand, the artist and the fan. Um, in a scalable way, which is which is something like magic. So um, to watch Nathan take this company, I was I was thinking about it the other day. Like our first Christmas party, there were like four of us in a Chinese restaurant, and then the last one there were like <laughs> 200 people there. You know, and it's just he's 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 a master at that. I'm pretty good at taking companies from kind of zero to you know 20 people or so. Nathan can scale it much 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 bigger, and the impact that it's having on artists. You talk about purpose, not product. It is a hugely purpose driven company and, and the products are just byproducts of this drive to sort of more effectively and efficiently um, you know create these unique relationships between artists and brands. Do you have any specific uh, stories with artists and brands that you'd like to share with us? Yeah so many I mean it's just there's, there's any number of artists who um, you know because of the technology that's been built we can find these artists that are sort of uh, not only value aligned with the brand but also poised uh, to to you know they, they have to have at least a little bit of a toehold, but in no way would these artists um, be able to to possibly um, get the radio play or get the type of exposure just because of the the vagaries of the music industry um, disallow you know, for the most part um, artists to get um, radio play without payola even today and it, it, it has to do with frequency more than money because a lot of people think that oh if you just pay for um, 
pay for the, the, the payola, and then you can get your, your uh, records played. It's just really not true because, you know, the major labels are, are going every day and some independent label or independent individual, they may have all the money in the world, but, um, but they don't have the, uh, the frequency. And so it's been, um, it's been really, really amazing to watch the, uh, the, any number of these artists um, actually getting radio play in a, an organic way um, and connecting with fans, watching their sort of social explode. So, yeah, it's been um, too many to You're really providing value for everyone. You know, it's a win-win-win situation. The, the fans get what they want. The artists get what they want. The brands get what they want. And it's all in this little symbiotic relationship. And you're tying it up with a nice yeah. little bow. Which is hard because, I mean, you've got mm-hmm. you've got disparate players, right? I mean, matching matching the sort of emotional sort of connectivity around music with a brand and doing so in a way that the fans don't, and, or the bands, feel like it sort of jives. That's hard, right? And 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 it, it, you know, historically, the music industry has never, never relied on data of any kind, right? So, um, music put into movies or TV was was always, you know, well, I don't know, my cousin knows, you know, uh, back or something. Let's we'll see if he'll do it, you know. And and we we <laughs> we don't do that now. There is human intervention, you know. We're very careful to say that it's not. I, I don't. I mean, I think you know, algorithms are not. Um, not in a place. I don't care how how robust they are. Um, that they can completely replace sort of human um, inter- human sort of ears or what have you um, when it comes to music. But um, so it's 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 a uh, <laughs> it's a it's a testament once again to what what uh, Nathan has built and the great team, the way they're leveraging technology, but not not sort of foregoing the human element. In all of this, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned along the way? You know, I, I say that the, the single biggest lesson is that nobody knows, right? Um, and, and by that, I mean, I, I don't care if you're Steve Jobs, if you're Thomas Edison, if you're Clive Davis. Um, they don't know. What, what, what really great entrepreneurs and great business people do is they, they set up experiments. They have a thesis and they have a strong sort of purpose-driven thesis, right? Something that's driving them, again, going back from purpose and product. Most of them have, or all of them, I'd say, have some sort of purpose that's tugging at them. And then there's this sort of relentless drive to test that thesis um, through a series of sort of implementations um, and then being able to refine product market fit. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a, you know, kind of this idea of, of businesses start with this sort of initial thrust of excitement and they reach a peak and then they start falling down, cascading down because all businesses are hard. And you, you eventually sort of cross below the horizon line of, of where you originally started. In other words, you're now less excited than when you started the business. And that's, you know, sort of the valley or the trough of despair or whatever. And, and great business people, great entrepreneurs are able at that sort of trough of despair moment to pull back on purpose and remember why they were doing it and then, and then work to find product market fit. And I've seen it over and over again in my own career. I've helped you know, countless companies at this point sort of do that. And then I'm lucky enough to have, have partners, not just with Music Products Exchange, but with, with other companies like Riptide Music Group, which is a publishing company. Um, that, that I, I see this thread with this sort of purpose-driven, relentless ability to keep testing um, until product market fit sort of, sort of lines up and, and not to get married to some sort of concept or product, but rather to sort of call back on, on why they're doing it. And then that allows them to sort of have the freedom to sort of adjust and tweak at the margin. Too often bad entrepreneurs or inexperienced entrepreneurs just kind of keep ramming the same idea, even when the market is telling them it's, it's not right. You know, um, ideas spread 
when you do something remarkable and you put it in front of people predisposed to care, and then you build something called Net Promoter Score where, where people are telling their friends. And unless and until that happens, no product works. Um, figuring out how to test it so you can see um, if you're ever going to achieve that sort of Net Promoter Score, that's that's the sign of a great entrepreneur. No, that's, that's a fantastic way to put it and such wonderful sage advice. Um, I have no. to ask, do you do you play any instruments or anything? Yeah, of course. I mean, I could. I think it'd be it'd be completely disingenuous if I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I've been a guitar player since I, since I was ten, and and it's you know it's taken on a very different role in my life at this point. It's more just sort of meditative and and something, but it's it's deeply connecting again back to that purpose. And, and I will say, and this is less a less a plug than than a real analogy. You know, I, I teach as well, and and I, I'm constantly pushing my students. To try to um, to try to put their own work out, to not rely on some third party, be it a label or whatever. And um, I had written a series of, of articles for my Forbes column on on blockchain technology, and um, I wanted to compile them. And I had some publishers asking if they, if they if they could do it. And it's tempting, right? It's really tempting, both from a sort of ego standpoint and time standpoint, and everything else, to say, oh yes, well, you know, whatever big publisher is going to put out my book. And just like I keep playing guitar, I forced myself to to put the book out on my own little publishing company, which which also has another great book um, by an artist manager named Emily White. She put out a book called Entering 101 that I highly recommend people uh, who are looking to break into any industry read. But in any case, I, I forced myself, and it was one of the hardest things I've done in a long time, to to put the book out myself. And again, the, the book was dominantly finished because they were just all articles. But just getting over that psychological leap of no, you're going to do it yourself. You're not going to wait. Uh, and I was lucky; I've got um, you know young employees who sort of helped enforce me. But but it was still not not offsetting and not offloading it to someone else. Um, so you know that 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 guitar question is an important one because yeah, of course I do. But I also make things right. I, I, I find it disingenuous. Um, for for people to go out and consult and stuff and not ever make things, you know, um, and so I, I think that that my little company, my strategy company, is is kind of unique because I'm I'm not just running around, you know, sitting on my lotus flower. I'm, I'm actually, you know, building companies at the same time. Uh, that sounded no, much I, more like a plug than I wanted it to, but it's, it's really true. No, it, it it didn't. I really think that what came through is, you know, I love that idea of like just do it. You know, there's so many avenues out there for you to put your to put your heart and soul out there to put out your product to put out your, what you're working on because if you keep waiting for the right opportunity, it might never come. You have to create your own opportunities and, and get a feel for what works and what doesn't out in the space. 100%. Yeah, I mean, you've got to test and you have to be able to... It, it's hard, right? I mean, it, it's hard psychologically. It's hard just sort of pragmatically to actually put something out. It's attributed to Steve Jobs. I don't know if it's true or not, but I mean, he says, you know, great artists ship. Um, you know, you actually have to put uh-huh. something into the marketplace and, and be prepared <laughs> to have the market be completely uninterested um, and, and then have the resolve, which I, I feel only exists if you have a real purpose um, to to keep, keep tweaking and, and keep refining um, and sort of flattening that learning curve. Uh, that is 100 percent. I'm jiving with that. Um, so if people if people want to find out more about you, they want to learn more about GHS or they want to see. Max, you know, what are the best places for them to to get involved and to follow all these all these different companies yeah. you have going on? Yeah. So for me, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, the, the central hub would be ghstrategic.io, ghstrategic.io, and that that links off to not only the companies with whom um, I, I consult or advise, but also the companies that I founded. It also has, I think, pretty clear 
um, you know, explanations of this sort of purpose product dynamic and, and the models that we use. I'm, I'm a believer in sort of giving away information. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff that, that's there. Um, but myself and then, you know, my employees, we write a lot about, um, you know, our, our thesis. Um, and of course, there's musicaudienceexchange.com as well, um, which people can, can go to that site and learn more about that. And then the book is called Everything in Its Right Place, um, How Blockchain uh, Can Help Artists. I love it. I love it. George, thank you so much for joining us here today and, and taking the time to, to share your wisdom and to share your passion with us. Yeah, it's so, so nice of you to have me. I enjoyed it very much. That is George Howard. He is the founder of GHS. Check him out. Thank you all so much for tuning in. This has been Juliet Lamar with Future Tech Podcast. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.